then what is the craziest case you've ever seen? In the middle of the ocean, having this woman get hit by a boat and I basically was the only healthcare worker out there. I was surfing and she was snorkeling in the channel and nobody knew that where exactly she was. She drifted into the boat channel basically. Took off to go back to the island and hit her. So after they hit her, I had just taken a wave and I hear everyone screaming and waving to me. So I paddle over to her as fast as I can and I look at her leg and she has a huge hole in the side of her femur. And I thought, okay, where's the shark? She had a broken humerus, scapula and clavicle. When I showed up, I thought they were gonna take her over, get the x-rays, CAT scans, put a chest tube in her and all that. And they basically were like, you got it, Dr. Bikini. Welcome back, and hello if you are new here. My name is Stephanie Arnuk, yoga instructor and medical student, and today we have on such an exciting guest. Dr. Candice Myrie and I go deep into facing sexism in medicine, imposter syndrome, and the coolest medical emergency story I've ever heard in my life. Dr. Myrie is an emergency medicine physician at Wilcox Hospital in Kauai who fell in love with surfing as a burnt-out third-year resident in training. Since then, she's volunteered numerous times as a surf doctor in underdeveloped countries like Indonesia, Fiji, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, and more. In this episode, she firsthand describes how in 2013, while surfing, she saved a woman's life who was hit by a 26-foot boat in the middle of the South Pacific and suffered life-threatening injuries. She reenacted the story on Untold Stories of the ER, and the photographs went viral when she spoke out against sexism in medicine on July 24, 2020. The Instagram post, Dr. Candy's Survival, was in response to the sexist article in the Journal of Vascular Surgery. And the coolest part about all of this is that I reposted her post when this all happened. Her outrage that women are still being asked to hold their private image to a different standard to be respected in the workplace resonated with hundreds of thousands, including myself, and her goal is to collectively cancel sexism. Enjoy the episode. All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. I could not be happier, more excited to have Dr. Candice Meyer on All Things Con Amor today. To start us off, to give us a little bit of background about you, could you give us a little bit of an explanation as to how you figured out what you were passionate about, like pursuing what you love as a career? And did you ever consider not going into medicine or did you ever consider a different specialty? Yeah. Hey, Stephanie, thank you so much for having me on. And I would love to tell you a little bit about my journey to go to medical school. I attended Wellesley College, which is an all-women's college. My sister had gone to Scripps, and so I was inspired to go to a place where they really focused on the development of women, whether it's in sports or education, careers. And I spent their time, my time learning about women's studies there. Psychobiology was my other major. And really sort of focused in that I, I like the mind-body idea and, and trying to figure out how the mind and body interacted and how they affected each other. And I thought that was so interesting, but there wasn't a lot of talk about that in medicine, but that intrigued me in my psychobiology studies. And then I went on to also have an interest in marine mammal biology, which was very different. And I spent six months in La Paz, Mexico, in the ocean studying the relationship between the vocalizations and behaviors of dolphins, which was fascinating and very much like human socialization, The um, dolphin socialization spends a majority of their time feeding, interacting, and then also sex is a big part of their relationship. 
And a lot of the vocalizations that we recorded were them interacting sexually, which is so interesting to me. So for a, a very short time, I thought I wanted to be a sex therapist. But when I went into the Wellesley <laughs> Library, there was literally one book on sex therapy, which is oh, so- bad. Yeah. It's so funny now, because what do you see on Instagram? Like everywhere, it's people like sex therapists, people normalizing sex, people talking about their bodies and, you know, embracing their bodies. And like, I have this great book I read to my daughter every night that talks about your amazing body, but no one talked about bodies about that way. It was- No, they didn't. Don't talk about your body, right? Yeah. I mean, don't talk about your body. Don't talk about your periods. Don't talk about any of this stuff. So that was my original interest. And then- I had that very hard talk, which I'm sure you had with your parents about what you wanted mm-hmm. to do. Did when I wanted a... to be a yoga teacher full time. And my mom was like, I don't want you to struggle. And I was like, I don't want to struggle. <laughs> so right? I liked both. And, and I'm like, I can do yoga when I like, I still teach yoga, but I can do both. Right. So you're passionate about yoga, but you realize that that is not going to support you financially. So I went through a very similar struggle as you did. I loved remote biology. I love being out in the ocean. Um, but same thing. My parents said, you can have that as a hobby and you love science. You should go into medicine. And my father was a heart surgeon. And so that was the way that I learned a little bit more about medicine than maybe the average person would have the opportunity to. So yeah, it's basically, they convinced me it's a good career and you'll never have freedom. And that was really important coming from women's college. My sister was always telling me, don't ever have to rely on anyone else. You always should be able to rely on yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just been such an important, you know, part of my life and my career is not having to rely on anyone else and being self-sufficient financially yeah. and educationally, emotionally, all of the above. <laughs> I think it's important. It's, it's so much better when you know that you're full on your own and other people just add to that rather than having that codependency. And similarly, like I have seen like so many women have to depend on other people and I never wanted to be one of them. So I am. Yeah, that's a very difficult struggle for a lot of women I talk to is you're just, you're basically on someone else's path. Like you're on, you're on their train. You're not driving the train. You're just, you're a passenger. And I never want to be a passenger. I wanted to drive the train. I love that. A whole conductor. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so you eventually chose ER and how did that come about? Like, what did you love about it? And how did you like settle on that? So when I was at USC, we were next to one of the biggest trauma centers in the country, LA County, USC. And I would go over there uh, for different rotations and talk to physicians that were working there, Stuart Squadron, Billy Mallon. These were all really big names in emergency medicine that were really, you know, right outside of our doorstep at county. And so I would go across there and spend time with them, get to know the type of cases they were seeing. And it was just such an amazing melting pot of cultures and disease and trauma and foreigners and people flying in on planes. And there was so much pathology that I'd never experienced and exciting pathology too, rare cases that you wouldn't see. And you never knew it was gonna come through the door. So I just like that idea of really having unexpected cases walking in and having to be prepared. And then the other component of course is that it's shift work. So I remember one of the female ER attending saying, this is a great, career for a woman because you can have it all. You can have your shift work. You can have your time with your family. You can have your vacations, your travel. Um, One thing she didn't really emphasize, which I wish she would emphasize a little bit more was the night shifts aspect of it. 
having a newborn after a night shift and coming home to breastfeed is not ideal. So I think, you know, it's really important as you're a medical student, as you are, to go through all these different fields and really picture yourself in it, spend time with the physicians that are in the field and just see if, you know, if this really feels, what is that, that book I love? Um, the one when you tidy your house and you take sweaters and you see if something brings you joy. Yes. <laughs> I can't remember yes. the name of it. Oh, of course we'll remember it after this is all over, but I mm-hmm. basically took every specialty and just kind of hugged it and thought, does this bring me joy? Does this bring me happiness? Do I feel like I'm, you know, making people's lives better through this specialty? Am I good at it? And I think that's kind of what I went through with emergency medicine and just really loved um, all the different cases. I like the variety. I like to suture a little bit someday, you know, other days you're trying to investigate a really difficult pathological case of many symptoms and you don't know what disease they have. So just the variety was really what drew me into that and the flexibility. So both. I feel like it keeps things so lively. And I think it's so beautiful to be there for people when they're like panicking, when something emergent happens and they're, it's like, you are the person that gets to calm them down. I think that's a really incredible aspect to it. Yes. That becomes better with time because you really do start to understand, okay, this is serious. You're about to die or, okay, we have some time here. Let's everyone take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. And then, right. You, you also learn how to calm people down in really horrible situations, whether it's through laughter or breathing or meditation or whatever you can figure out what they need. I sort of coined this frame called a chameleon chef. Mm-hmm. because you're basically a chef in an ER. You've got all these pans boiling. You don't want any of them to boil over. And then every time you go into a different room, you've got people's different emotions. So you have to change like a chameleon. You know, they're happy in one room. They're sad in another. They're scared in another. So I like to say, if you go into emergency medicine, you're basically a chameleon chef. It's a, it's a really incredible skill set to have. And it's also, I think, useful in not just medicine, like in any area of your life to be able to read people that way and communicate in the way that they need. So I commend you for it. It is. It's helpful to try to, you have to read people within, you know, a minute to figure out if they're sick, how they're feeling, how you should be talking to them. And it does, it takes some time to get to that point, but it is an important skill. Like you said. Do you read a lot of their body language off of it or are you, is it just kind of like the energy in the room when you walk in? It's both F- facial expression used to be really important. Not so much with masks anymore. Now I yeah. can't, I don't have the luxury of that, but definitely an really an interesting thing. That's kind of an important tool we have as physicians, which has been lost a little bit. I try to see how people come in. Did they come in in a gurney? Did they walk in? You really get yeah. so much information about, how capable they are. And a little, a a lot of time that's lost because they're already in a gown. And once someone's in a gown, they look immediately ill to me. So Mm -hmm. I learned that I have to start trying to spot people before they actually get put back in a room. So a lot of times we'll go out and look in the waiting room and just sort of pan the room. So then I know when they come back, was this person really sick in the waiting room or they're, they're doing okay. And it gives me a sense of how urgent they are when I see their name pop up and are, or actually going to see them. But yeah, body language is very important. Tone's very important. Um, all that helps so much. You really have to be, to be an emergency medicine physician, you really have to be a social person or mm-hmm. you're not going to get the whole story, all the information you need. Yeah. They, what do they say that medical history is the biggest diagnosing tool we have? Like getting the story out of them is so much more important than any test we can do really. Absolutely, for sure. And that's why translators are so important too. I, when I trained at LA County, it was a 
big Hispanic population. And mm-hmm. so my Spanish was quite good, but I'll never forget one case where I wish I'd, I had used a translator because I think it would have helped me solve the case a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's so important is to make sure if it's not their primary language that you have someone to interpret for them because you'll have a diagnosis maybe 20 deep for somebody, but with all the good historical facts, you can narrow it down to maybe 10 and then order the appropriate tests and the studies. And sometimes getting to a diagnosis within an hour is a life-saving maneuver. Whereas if you wait two hours to get the diagnosis, the person's dead. So it is a very um, important skill. That's something I struggle with right now when we're like learning all of the symptomology, because so many things have like the same three symptoms and then it's 20 different diseases. And I'm like, how would you know? But that was also something that really drove me towards medicine was being the translator, all of my grandma's doctor's appointments growing up. And so I thought it would be like really wonderful to be in those populations and be able to speak to them in their own language. So my mom always says it's, it's sweeter to speak in your home tongue. That's like the, the sentence she says in Spanish. So I, that's how I grew up. So I really enjoy it. If you ever need a translator, you can call me, but it sounds like your right? Spanish is good. Uh-huh. It's pretty good. They, I had a nickname. They used to call me Dulce because my name's Aww. Candy. And so they would call me Dulce to help people translate. And mm-hmm. so that was great when I was at LA County. But then a lot of times when you go into certain hospitals, they really want you to use a, a certified translator, which is good. Here in Kauai, we have a lot of um, Filipino population. Mm-hmm. We have Marshallese Islands. And obviously I don't even Filipino, they sometimes speak Spanish, but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't speak as much Spanish as I used to, but I, I did love it. And it is a great skill to have a second language. It's a huge plus when you're applying to go to programs where they have a lot of people from other countries. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful, it's wonderful for them to be able to communicate with you, even if you're not going to be their essential translator, but to have you to know that you speak their language is something really special for them to make them feel comfortable and give you the information you need to diagnose them. Yeah. To reassure them. Can we switch gears just a little bit? And would you be able to explain the story behind med bikini, which I know a lot of my listeners already know, and they're so excited to hear from you, but from your own perspective, how did it all happen? Well, it was very unexpected. I actually had started an Instagram account called um, Dr. Candy survival and it was a personal account that I was just going to talk about surf doctor injuries that I took, have taken care of some of my travels in medicine, women in medicine, but just, you know, 300 people that I'm friends with, um, and had done maybe 20 posts. And then my friend started circulating this information about this study by in the journal of vascular surgery. And the study basically watched women on their Facebook, social media platforms, I think Instagram too. And basically um, would mark off if they saw them wearing a bikini, a hollow, a risque Halloween outfit, drinking alcohol, and they followed men and women to see what activities they were doing. And the whole premise of the article was if women are behaving in this way in social media and they have a private practice as a vascular surgeon, no one's going to trust them and want to come to their private practice if they're wearing a bikini on social media, that it's going to be unprofessional. So they deemed all these things unprofessional for women, but they didn't, they weren't found to be unprofessional for men. So when the study came out, of course, all these female vascular surgeons are furious because all of a sudden their social life is now making them unprofessional and apparently going to keep them from having a successful vascular surgery practice. So 
fortunately, everyone really the country, the world banded together and in support started posting pictures of themselves in bikinis. Well, I just happened to have a picture of myself from an untold stories episode where I was Dr. Bikini. And so I thought, gosh, I post this. I don't really know. I mean, I guess so. And I was sort of unsure of it. And my husband had been there when the actual accident had happened. So I asked him, I said, I'm going to talk about this accident and this woman who I saved in the middle of the ocean and talk about how I don't, it doesn't matter what I'm wearing. I can save your life. I can be a bikini. I can be in a prom dress. It doesn't matter. So he's like, oh yeah, go for it. So it's just, you know, one of those things was like, it's like entering a contest to win a million dollars. You're like, I'm not going to, this isn't going to, I'm just part of the. You just said just it to say it. Yeah. It. I love that yeah, your husband was supportive. It. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I said, I'm just going to come together, you know, with all these other women who are upset and men and speak out. And so it was just all about solidarity. So I posted it and I went to work and I'm new to Instagram and I hadn't really turned on or off certain things on my phone. So I go to my shift in the ER in Kauai. And all of a sudden my phone starts going beep, 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 beep. And just constant, like it just went one entire thread. And I looked Mm -hmm. at it and I basically had received just thousands of people liking my post and sending me DMs. And it went from, I went from 300 followers to like 40,000 followers. And then there was 200,000 likes or plus on my I was one of Instagram. the people that reposted your picture like everyone <laughs> reposted your picture because the caption was so good right I think that was it I was just like this is what I was trained to do this is what I would do if you got hit in the boat in the middle and just right there was no ifs ands or buts I was like this is what's going to happen because there's that mm-hmm. golden hour when someone has trauma and you have one hour to save their life and so you, I was just explaining what I would do And didn't realize just how empowering that was to so many people and how special it was that I was telling, (laughs) I think I just synergized the two movements, the bikini picture and the, the fact that I'm a physician just all came together into this Dr. Bikini look that everyone used. And I, just to be clear, I wasn't the person who started hashtag med bikini. I was just a supporter, but I became a very hesitant face of the hashtag med bikini movement because I'm not really you know, I moved to Kauai. I used to live in Los Angeles. If I wanted to be, you know, in the spotlight, I I could have been, I guess, (laughs) but I just, this was so important to me because I went to women's college. I, I think it's, you know, women's studies is so important and I empowerment of women, stopping sexism. I've been, had so many sexist things happen to me over my lifetime that have brought me to where I am today. So it was just a very powerful platform. And I thought, you know what, if I'm going to have any platform, this is the one that I would want. And I'm going to take the mic and I'm going to just run with it. And so Mm -hmm. after a very frightening weekend of being overwhelmed with, you know, they were posting articles in Bali and India, like it was translated in every language all over the world. And I was getting calls from magazines and podcasters and articles in the news and so it was a little, I had to take a minute and just take a deep breath and um, decide that I wanted to do it because I could have just, you know, hidden in my little hole and gone back to my life here in Kauai, but I embraced it. And I'm glad that I did. I feel like so many women have been inspired and really reached out to me so positively. And I think that's the most important thing to me is medical students like yourself and other aspiring female healthcare workers feel like there's space for them in medicine and they don't have to take, you know, whether it's verbal or physical abuse in, in their profession and that it's not acceptable. 
Absolutely. I, the thing that really blows my mind about all of it was the fact that it got published. You know how many people had to read it before it got like, while it was getting edited and somebody had to finalize it and then they had to print it. Like how did all of these levels of people agree to publish it? That was the thing that really got me when I heard about it. And the, the biggest reason that I'm pretty active on social media is for the same reasons as to empower other women and show that like you can have both things. I think it's it's so sad to me how often I see people act so surprised when I'm when I meet people out and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in medical school. And they're like, really? And I'm like, why does that <laughs> surprise you? Why are you so shocked? Um, so I, I really want to like break the glass ceiling and normalize having it all and showing that women can live their lives and do the things they want and still be seen as intelligent and capable. Right. I think that is the most important purpose for us now as female healthcare workers is basically to present ourselves as a whole person. We're not just a healthcare worker. We're not just a physician. There's so many other aspects where, you know, we're mothers, we're wives, we're humanitarians, we're, you know, egalitarians. We want so much for the world and for ourselves. And you know what? We have periods and we have sex and we have babies and we lose babies and we, you know, well by lose, I don't mean we actually physically lose them, but we, you know, miscarry and yeah, all these different parts of our lives that are so important and so valuable that we should be able to share and not be you basically not um, be afraid of any afraid, type of be, repercussion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That we're not going to be successful in our careers because you know, we breastfeed or we take maternity leave or whatever we do. We wear bikinis. <laughs> we, wear, we wear the bikinis. In, in terms of your career in medicine, what is the craziest case you've ever seen that you can handle with or without a bikini? Well, I would have to say definitely the pinnacle of my career was being out on that boat in the middle of the ocean and having, you know, this woman get hit by a boat. And I basically was the only healthcare worker out there Um, I took care of her, you know, from the minute I got her in the water, pulled her in the boat. Um, so she was in the water and a boat hit her. Oh yes. So I was surfing in a surf resort Uh and I had gone out surfing and she was snorkeling in the channel and nobody knew that where exactly she was. She drifted into the boat channel basically. Oh no. Took off to go back to the Island and hit her. So after they hit her, I had just taken a wave and I hear everyone screaming and waving to me. So I paddle over to her as fast as I can. I literally was about to throw up when I got to her. Cause you know, when you're out of breath and I look at her leg and she has a huge hole in the side of her femur. And I thought, okay, where's the shark? <laughs> I'm next. You thought someone took a bite out of her. Yeah. So the boat propeller had taken a bite out of her leg basically. And it <sighs> broken her femur into you know, her long bone into so many pieces So I got her on her, on a soft top board and had people in the boat, lift her into the boat. And when I got on board, I took off, this was the, you know, the, the chicken skin where you call it goosebump section was I took off a rash guard. She had actually let me borrow and used it to tie off her leg. So she wouldn't bleed to death, which still gives me chicken skin when I talk about it. So once we got on the boat, we transported her to the Island and in the urgent care, there's that you know about the golden hour, right? If you learned about mm-hmm. it in school. Not so yet, have, but I, so I get have, that concept. Right. So you have one hour to resuscitate someone. You have to give them fluids, blood, whatever they need to close their wounds and trauma so that they don't die. So I had mm-hmm. by myself, I had to get an IV in her. I had to get the bleeding to stop. 
I had to give her oxygen. I had to get her legs set, close all the windows. In an urgent care, not even in like in a whole hospital. Right. It was basically just a room with a lot of medical supplies on an island. You could walk around in 15 minutes. It's not really oh my God. in urgent care per se. It's just where we keep all the supplies. Uh-huh. So no one's, it's right. It's, there's no, I'm the only one running that place when I'm there. So if I'm out surfing, there's no one there. They just get me for accidents. So it's sort of the, the beauty of the volunteer surf doctor is that you are called into action when you need to be. And otherwise you're just surfing your brains out. So that's why I love this job so much is because I can practice emergency medicine and then do what I love most, which is surf and be in the water with dolphins and whales and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, we, we basically had her maintain there for about an hour. And then I realized that her, some of her wounds were really life-threatening very early on. I heard fluid in her lungs. I could hear crackling. So mm-hmm. I knew that she had broken several ribs and probably had some bleeding in her lungs. So we slapped oxygen on her. The helicopter landed about an hour after we got back to the clinic. And then I flew her to an underdeveloped hospital on a larger island and basically took the case over from the beginning in the ER. When I showed up, I thought they were going to take her over, get the x-rays, CAT scans, put a chest tube in her and all that. And they basically were like, you got it, Dr. Bikini. (laughs) (laughs) Literally wearing a bikini and a rash guard. At that point, I'd found some clothes and they basically were like, what test would you like? It was, they basically took over as my secretary and I just wrote down, you know, I need a stat hemoglobin, CBC, the whole thing. Mm -hmm ordered all the x-rays, ordered all the CAT scans. There was no radiologist there. I read all the films myself. I put her chest tube in myself. I, you know, she had a fully catheter in. I ordered the blood products, bandaged all of her wounds, you know, fixed her um, splint for her broken arm. She had a broken humerus, scapula, and clavicle. Did she have to end up with any amputations? Is she still, is she able to walk? She is actually. She had about 12 surgeries. Wow. It was a lot. She had, and then she had sepsis because we had to put um, tap water in the chest tube system. There was no um, normal saline package at this hospital. She had multiple other types of infections. So yeah, she barely survived with her life, but she kept her leg. It was so damaged though. Her femur was broken in like 120 different pieces. Oh. It was the worst femur fracture I've ever seen. So that was really the, the, the crux of her recovery was getting that leg back working again. So she walked with a a walker and a cane for quite a while, Mm -hmm. but she was in her fifties. So she did quite well. So she's ambulatory now and back to a a normal life, except probably for chronic pain from all the fractures. But yeah, so that was my biggest case. I have saved her life. She would have died if you hadn't been there. She would have. And it took me a long time to really, it's so funny. I feel like as women, we're like, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. We don't really embrace how powerful we are as women and as physicians. And I finally got to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, I am a hero. Yes, you are. (laughs) I hate, I hate that it's, it's, if a man, if a man were to say it, it would be seen as confidence and it would be seen as them just stating their achievements. But if a woman says it all of a sudden she's cocky and it's no embrace it. It's confidence. Yeah. I did. I did embrace it for the first couple of days. I told my husband that he could call me a hero. And my, my son was there too. I have an older, um, extra son. And he, I was like, Oh, you guys just call me hero. That's fine. You don't, you don't have to call me. (laughs) But then, yeah, after a while. And then when this, when this post went viral and people were like, Oh, she's a badass," And 
she's like amazing. And all these people are complimenting me. I, I, it kind of took me a minute to take it all back in again and go, oh yeah, I guess I, I am a hero. I did save this person's life, but it really, you're, you're right. We don't readily just, we're not natural big talkers. I think as we're, we're not, we weren't allowed to take up space for so long that it's like almost ingrained in us a little bit. And I think it's finally time for us to take that space back. I a hundred percent agree. We do. We need to make ourselves bigger. Mm-hmm. I, have been so small for so many years, I think. And a lot of it is because you are made to feel small. And I mean, still, when I walk into a room, I'm not considered the doctor until even several times after I've introduced myself. So I Mm -hmm. think you're not only made to feel small by other people that you're training under, but then actually by patients who might not even realize that they're practicing misogyny. I don't think they purposely do it a lot, but it's just ingrained Misogyny is so deeply ingrained in our society on so many levels, as we see from that study about women and and vascular surgeons that probably, like you said, the people who were reviewing the paper didn't even realize they were being misogynistic. They thought they were actually writing an actual- They thought it was data. Yeah. I'm like, you you thought this was publishable work? Like, I don't have a publication yet, but I would never publish that. Right. I mean, well, think about the people who wrote it, what they're, you know, after- it came out and they were just attacked. They probably, they never would have written an article like that if they thought they would have been attacked in the media for being misogynist. But what made them want to write that article to begin with? Like, why did they want to, to, to go and stalk their interns' social media pages? That is such a great point. I don't know Mm -hmm. if anyone ever interviewed them to figure out what the purpose of that study was, why. And also I feel like there's so many other important topics in vascular surgery to be addressed besides what we're wearing. Yeah. I I feel like that's the least of their concerns. I I just, I can't with that. Yeah. So it is a a one year anniversary. So we were all posting again with the med bikini photos. And actually I have a, I just decided to have the first annual med bikini Olympics. And so I'm having all the emergency, because we've had such a rough year in emergency medicine with COVID. So where all the families of the ER doctors are getting together at the beach in a open space and doing like a little decathlon for our kids and doing a surf contest. And all of us are expected to wear bikinis. Hopefully some of the men will show up in speedos as they did <laughs> support, which is actually a really good, good part of being here. And why is it, you know, bikinis are just part of every day. And then mm-hmm. all the male doctors on this Island, when the journal article came out, I said, Hey, can I have a picture of you in a bathing suit or a speedo? And I can post you in your picture in your white coat and a picture in your bikini. They were like, yeah, sure. We we're totally support you. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So if you look on some of my posts, there's pictures of all these guys wearing their speedos or bathing suits. And then a picture of them in a white coat, which is so cool. Cause when you are trying to combat such a big thing, like sexism, you need to have allies and yeah, men are especially allies. other men speaking up for us. I totally agree. I recently saw this post and it was like, why is a man in a bikini like on the beach seen as work-life balance, but a woman in a bikini on the beach is seen as sexual or provocative and unprofessional? I was like, that is a good point. Right. I guess it just depends on who's wearing the bikini or the Speedo. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. I, I love that you really have found a way to do the things you absolutely love on a day-to-day basis. So what advice do you think you could give anyone that wants to pursue their passion in any field? Like, like you love surfing and that's what you get to do. 
I think you just have to really make time for it and figure out how it fits into your schedule. I think one of the sad parts of being in medical school and residency is you're so strapped for time and not able to pursue your hobbies like yoga, which is actually something great to have as a hobby because you could fit it into your life pretty easily. Right. Yeah. So a lot of things you can't, you know, I actually started out when I went to med school, I was on a, a team where I paddled with them, um, on the long canoes. And so I just couldn't do that anymore. Cause it's, you meet at five o'clock every day. Well, I no longer have a five o'clock free every day when you're in residency. So surfing actually came about in my third year of residency. And I went on a trip. I was so burnt out and I went there and you would love it. It's called surf divas and they're amazing. You do yoga mm-hmm. in the morning and then you have a surf lesson. Wow. I and would love they- that. You would love it. They still run their trip in Costa Rica. Actually, hopefully this February, they'll start back up again. But yeah, we did, we did yoga in the morning, then a surf lesson after that, and then surfing at sunset. And then during the day we'd get a massage or go on an adventure or whatever. And it was the best week of my life at that point, because I was so passionate about surfing and how much joy it brings me. And then I also learned about yoga and how important that is to be able to do your underwater ballet you're doing when you wipe out on a surfboard, you have to be able to stretch your body. Yeah. So yoga is just a good balance with surfing. But yeah, that would be my advice is just pick something that fits into your lifestyle and medicine or whatever it is and really make room for it every week. I make room for surfing every week in my life here in Kauai and it's so important. And if I don't make a room for it, my mental health always suffers. So I think that's, yeah, such an, such important to not lose yourself when you go into your profession. I think, I think that's for sure. I, I feel like it's so easy to just say, I don't have time, but then you have time to watch TV for an hour every day or scroll on social media. And so it's really just about like how you choose to use your time. And as like you being a physician, I'm sure you always get like questions on like how to live better. So what is a big health and wellness tip that you think anyone could follow? Oh my gosh. Well, (laughs) I think probably it's just the daily routine of just finding a half an hour every day to do something, some sport to just get your mind rolling and get your anxiety off and your stress relief. So it just depends. Like I didn't have a lot of time today. So I went swimming for half an hour yesterday. I had more time. So I surfed for an hour, but I think really athleticism is such an important part of your life and your mental health and releasing the serotonin dump. And then the other huge component with me is laughter. I mean, I laugh at everything. I laugh at myself first, and then I laugh at other people, but in a kind way who Mm -hmm. let me laugh at them. Our (laughs) family is constantly making jokes. I mean, there really are so many health benefits from laughter. Um, And I try to make my patients at work laugh, especially kids. If you're about to do a painful procedure on a kid and they're anxious, it's been proven that anxiety actually increases your stress and your, your, how you feel pain a lot worse. So I find that works in medicine and also in my life. And sometimes I, I step over that line a little bit. I'm a little bit inappropriate. Sometimes Um, I have a nickname here. They call everyone here auntie on the islands. And I thought they were actually people's aunts, but you're like everyone's auntie, which is such a great thing because it's a sense of community that we have here on the islands where you're all of a sudden I'm responsible for a kid. I don't even know because they're calling me auntie, which Mm -hmm. is great. And that's how the, you know, the village raises the child really here on, on uh, Kauai. And so they started calling me inappropriate auntie, auntie, because (laughs) I 
would often just make like really, you know, just take everything like a step too far, you know, or I like to make puns a lot and you just make silly jokes. And so they, you know, and I'm not afraid to talk about things with kids, you know, whether it's farting or, you know, some educational thing that they need to know about their bodies. I'm just totally comfortable talking about it. And a lot of, you know, people's, there's certain topics they don't want to talk about. So uh, that's how I got my nickname is inappropriate auntie here on the islands. I love that. I love that sense of community. That's um, they did like a study on like the happiest people in the world. And the, the biggest thing is having quality relationships, not necessarily like quantity, but having people that like you feel like you can trust, like having that type of community. I think I really got that out of uh, my mom's Colombian. And so Hispanics are very much so like I have a ton of aunts and uncles that I'm not related to. It's the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. I'm I a weird mix. Yeah. What country? I couldn't figure out exactly. You, I know you told me you spoke Spanish, but that's amazing. So are your parents from Colombia? No. So my parents met here. My mom is from Colombia and my dad is from Syria. So I, I had like very opposite cultures raise me in America, which is, I think, why I kind of got all, all of the perspectives. And my dad was obsessed with traveling. So I got to see a lot of countries growing up. And so I, I very much so like in, in the Middle East, it's very much so like don't speak unless you're spoken to. Like the elders always yeah. speak first, like stay home and do the cleaning and the cooking and, and be, you know, be small. And then my mom was always encouraging me and supporting me and saying, you have to have your own career and you have to be independent. And my grandmother came from like poverty and she was one of 12 and they all came out of it through education. So education was super, super important to my whole mom's side of the family. And that was, I think, a really big proponent of me wanting to really know everything there is to know about a field. Yeah. Education is so important. My family is the same. My father's Norwegian. He came from missionary parents that were impoverished. He came to the U.S. with nothing and put himself through school and became a heart surgeon. And I thought he was the most amazing man. And my mom, similar, she, her parents were Jewish from the Russian Poland, Polish border. They came as immigrants, extremely poor. Mm -hmm. Her father was a baker. She worked in the bakery with him. And then my, my grandfather who became an engineer and the two of them traveled all over the country. And at the time, being Jewish in the United States was not something looked upon favorably. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they were the they were the hated immigrants at the time, the Jews. The United so, States goes through phases of hated immigrants. They do. Yeah. They just, mm-hmm. ex- exactly. They decide what the flavor, what country they are going to hate for that decade. And then who's going to be the scapegoat next? Yeah. So at the time, it was my grandparents and they were all about education, too. So we're very similar, you and I, in the, in the sense that we that was ingrained in us get an education be a humanitarian you know be accepting of all cultures all religions all identities you're not better than anyone else you're part of the puzzle to create a better world and you leave this place better than we found it yeah and and just to put your heart into things like to give back the way you're saying right yeah and exactly and the the equality I think I think the equality is what's lost too on the fact Mm -hmm. that we're all there. No one's better than anyone else. When I go into work, I don't treat the surgeons that I'm talking to or the CEO better than someone who's coming in to clean up after COVID behind me. You know, everyone I treat with respect. I say, hello. I spend time getting to know. We were all human. And some of us haven't had the opportunity to have 
the education or the money or the degree or whatever, but we're just as important as the next person. And unfortunately that's lost in capitalist societies. It is. <laughs> it's something my mom always reminds me of is that like when we leave this, this earth, we don't take anything with us. We're all buried in the same 99% same DNA bones and body. And so I, I think that like, so there's so much more value in the way a person treats other people than there is in their accomplishments. Because when you die, like people will remember you for the way you made them feel and not for the crazy big things you did in life. And like, so, so my podcast, it isn't like to make a full-time income and quit being in medicine. It's, it's to help other people because I get to have conversations with people like you that I otherwise wouldn't have. And then we also get to share this conversation with people that otherwise wouldn't get to hear it. And I think that's really special. Yeah, it is. I think it's so special to inspire people and to have, there's so many voices out there that are just so horrible. And I feel like there's a lot of people that have so many important things to say, like the immunologist you interviewed. Mm -hmm. I mean, her, her voice is the voice in this time, in this moment that needs to be heard all over the world, the United States specifically, and educating people about COVID and the dangers of not being vaccinated and what, you know, what chance you're taking. And so it's so great. You are, you are, and I'm putting quotes, interviewing the people with the small voices to be heard because we're not out there, you know, saying, look at me, listen to me. I know you, I know things better than other people and you should listen to, we're just not going to do that. We have our opinions, we have our voices. And if people want to hear us, great. If they don't, then we're not going to, you know, run a campaign. But, Mm -hmm. and I think that's a problem. There's so many people in the world who are, look at me, listen to me, and then spreading whatever they're spreading, but there's not necessarily any basis of fact in it. And there's an agenda. Something I could go on a whole spiel about that is what made me start being so active on social media is that I noticed that there are so many people who like make a full-time living off of social media and off of influencing young girls and all, all their, their entire like platform is so superficial. Like they have a following because they're really pretty and they post pictures of their pretty lives. But like, where are they reminding, like where are they spreading positive messages or inspiring messages or just being like a really strong role model for people who need a self-esteem boost? Like I, a really big thing for me is being a mentor to people who don't have other people to help raise their self-efficacy and their ability to believe in themselves. Like so many times over the years, I was told, I was told I wouldn't get into my dream school. I was told I wouldn't get into a single medical school. I was told that I would never be a doctor. And if I hadn't had my mom to be so supportive, I wouldn't be here. And so I, I kind of really hope to someday be the platform for the people that don't have a mom like mine. Right. No, that's so true. I, the same, the same, (laughs) I mean, at Wellesley college, which is, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big school, you know, Hillary Clinton went there. If you like her, which I do, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know, so many amazing women went there, but myself going there and talking to my pre-med or post-college counselor basically told me the same thing. You're not going to get into med school. You need better grades. And you know, she was right a little bit, but just telling me that I couldn't do something that that's just not okay. Right. So I think like a better thing, like you said, we're like, okay, well, you're going to have trouble getting in, but what steps can you do to get there? Mm-hmm. And then for me, one of the steps was quitting soccer, which of course, then my soccer coach was like, well, medical school is not going to want quitters. Well, that's not something you say to a pre-med student. 
because like I'm at a division three school. I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm just enjoying <laughs> soccer. You're just good at it. Yeah. So, yeah. When you're getting hit from, from both sides, telling you, you're not going to succeed when, you know, it's just so crazy I to pay all this money to get this extreme education. And then they're telling you that you're not going to do what you want to do. And it's bizarre. Right. And with a biology major, I I had no plan B. People were like, so what are you going to do if you don't get into medical school? I was like, that, that's not like a thing. Like you, you do understand, like it's medical school or nothing. Like if I want to be a doctor, I'm going to be a doctor. I don't care what it takes to get there. And I I think a lot of people lose sight of that can do attitude because it's easy to listen to the voices that like kind of coincide with the, the little voice in their head. That's like, maybe you shouldn't be here. And I have a little voice in my head. That's like, you're, you're going to give people medical advice. Like who's going to listen to me, but you know, yeah, we all have that voice. And I think a big part of our whole lives is getting that voice to shut up Mm -hmm. so that (laughs) we can do the things we were meant to do. Right. And create a new voice for ourselves and help young women create a positive voice for themselves. I think that's so important. And I so agree with you. I mean, there's so many successful people in the world that will say, I was almost unsuccessful because I almost listened to that voice and other mm-hmm. people who told me I couldn't do something. And so they went out and they failed a bunch of times at what they wanted to do. And then they finally made it. And it is really the people, like you say, that are passionate about what they're doing, who try over and over again in lieu of failure and that finally succeed. And I'm a perfect example. You're a perfect example. I, I applied to med school twice. I didn't get in the first time. Really? So, no. Oh my gosh. No, I, well, that I was actually accepted to your alma mater. Well, soon to be alma mater Toro. I was accepted to go to a baccalaureate program. And my next step after that was to go to Haifa Israel. Cause I was really interested in international medicine. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'll go to Haifa and I'll be an international doctor. And I ended up traveling international as a physician later, but and that's originally what I wanted to do. But then at the time it was the nineties and I don't, you don't remember the nineties cause you were probably born after the nineties. <laughs> I was born but, in 97. I'm not quite oh, done. Just made it. Thankfully. Okay. Yeah. 97. I got into medical school in 96 and around that time they were, buses were blowing up in Haifa, Israel, just everywhere. And it was random. And I thought, okay, I really want to be an international doctor, but I don't want to get blown up on a bus. And right. I applied again to school and I, I was accepted to USC. So I did my four years at USC, but it was close. I could have gone to Israel, but I would have still been a doctor. I would have been Mm -hmm. trained in Israel and come back and done residency in the U S or somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. it was really funny because after I went to USC, I thought, I think this place, Bixby Hills in downtown LA is probably just as dangerous as Haifa is (laughs) right now. It doesn't, it doesn't have the explosions, but it's pretty close. Yeah. You've got, we were, I mean, when I was going to med school at times, there was like random gun shootings at cars on the freeway on my way there there was a shooting like 30 minutes after I got home from school one night a block away from where I lived last year so right so I mean really international medicine is is a reasonable first choice there I know a lot of great emergency doctors and other physicians that were trained in the Caribbean they all have MD at their name and they're great doctors it's really not like you said you take you take the path that you take to get to the profession you want to be in and you don't take no for an answer mm-hmm. and you just keep going and you find female mentors like yourself. I love being a female mentor um, to medical students and other students in life. It's actually one of my favorite, my favorite forums is to give medical student lectures about being a surf doctor. I, I really like that group of people. I'd much rather 
talk to people who are passionate about becoming physicians and talk to a group of peers about a research paper <laughs> that they, yeah. And that they, they're, they're just going to be like, Oh, okay. We've read 10 other papers this week. <laughs> right. I love talking to people who are excited about the field they're going into and excited about becoming physicians. And that's just so much more joyful for me to be involved with than than the latter, but I don't know if you remember this, but I only, um, got the courage to DM you because I went to one of the lectures you gave to a medical school on zoom. Oh, okay. Like I had followed you since the med bikini thing, but I like, you were just like this, this big figure to me. Like I was like, Oh, she's not going to read anything I say. And then you (laughs) gave that lecture on zoom. And it was so cool that you were talking about like traveling for free in exchange for dealing with the cases here and there. And so that's that's when I was like, I could DM her and ask her about it. Totally. And I, yeah. And I, I think that's so important if you, and it's so funny because I, it's so funny how you say that you're, I'm way up here. I, yeah, to make yourself available for people who are, you know, coming up in, in the same field that I struggled going through. And I think it's important to have female role models in this field, especially, mm-hmm. you know, as I told you, there is so much sexism and a, a lot of it's going to come out in my book that I'm writing that I, I talk about the stories of things that happened to me in medical school and residency and how I handled them or in life. And there's just a lot of sexism pervasive in medical school. And I think it's so important to have somebody you can talk to about it mm-hmm. and not be, um, you know, scared to, or feel like you did something, um, that brought it on and just on and on and on about all of that. But yeah, that was a big part of wanting to speak to make, put my face out there and, and welcome people into my world because I, it's so important. I think it, cause it'll, it'll stop you dead in your tracks if you experience sexism in your field and, you know, somebody scares you off from doing it because you don't want to be in a, a verbal or a physical abusive situation. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, what do you do in that situation when it's like someone that is in charge of you is acting in that way? And it's like, you could like, you, if you go to their higher ups, that it could be that nothing comes out of the situation. That was kind of my next point though. Like how you even decided that you wanted to write a book. And if you can give us more information on that, because I, I love, when people like put their experience into book formats because I love reading. So I was so excited to hear that you were pursuing that. Yeah, I really thought I start when the big accident happened, I, Mm -hmm. when the woman was hit by the boat, I thought, oh my God, this is such an incredible story. It needs to be told. And it, you know, was the most powerful moment in my career as, you know, to date, basically, I have a few other stories. I, I always, you know, in, in medicine, I'm heard, I'm sure you've heard this term white cloud and black cloud. So in medicine, I've, and I'll explain it to everyone else. I've always been I was going to say, cloud. I haven't heard it. Okay. You'll learn it. Don't worry. Okay. And so when you're working in the ER or in other parts of the hospital as a hospitalist, people will call you a white cloud or a black cloud or as, as a resident. And I was always a white cloud, which meant we would generally have a slow shift. There wouldn't be a lot of cases. There'd be enough cases. I would generally go home on time. Um, And then there's people who are black clouds where when they're working their shift, all hell breaks loose. Like every trauma in town comes in, every medical case comes in. They're never gonna go on home on time. The whole department's a hot mess until they leave. And once they're gone, everything settles down. Now, of course, this is just like a black cat, you know, or going under a ladder, all those kind of things. It's, it's not really, but there seems to be a pattern, unfortunately for some people. So I always had a white cloud in the ER. But I had a black cloud when I wasn't in the ER. 
So every time I got on a plane, I would take care of an emergency case starting from med school. I was reading the book House of God, which I highly recommend. It's a classic book from the 70s. And I was called to someone having an acute asthmatic emergency that I had to take care of as a medical student in sweat in sweatpants and pigtails, um, going, you know, across the pond to London. And I barely knew what I was doing. I, you know, getting the nebulizer treatment on or the whole deal. Well, from that moment forward, I was the white cloud, the black cloud of travel. So I've taken care of six in-flight emergencies. I've, you know, done more procedures on hikes or adventures from for people I don't even know than I can count. And my biggest one that I was gonna say was my second in line for you know most hectic moments of my career was I was driving down through Baja, which takes about 30 hours to go surfing. And halfway down Baja California Sur, a car of 14 people flipped over in a van and they were thrown out of the van 50 feet away and all various injuries. And I had to- Oh my God methodically triage them in my bikini once again with my stethoscope and I had to take supplies to make splints I had to pronounce someone dead and the paramedics arrived 45 minutes later and I had to intubate a 15 month old with a traumatic brain injury oh it sounds like a Grey's Anatomy episode like the Grey's Anatomy season finales where everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong yes I am an outside of the ER walking Grey's Anatomy (laughs) (laughs) So a lot I, of content for your book. I have so much content. And I thought, God, these are all such incredible stories. And I'd ask my friends, does this ever happen to you? And they're like, no, I just go on vacation and I just yeah. relax. So I started compiling these stories and putting them together. Um, and so the whole premise of the book, it's called Sex, Surf, Suture, Scars. And the reason I put sex in the beginning of the book was to force myself to talk about it because it's something we all do and it shouldn't be. I, I wanted to take it one step even further than the whole bikini thing. Not only mm-hmm. do I wear bikinis sometimes, but I have sex and it's normal for women and physicians to have sex. My daughter mm-hmm. just walked in the room. <laughs> <laughs> good timing. And like, we're reading this book, Celebrate Your Body, which mm-hmm. this is such a good book. Oh my gosh. It's a great book. Um, it's just about positivity for your body as a young girl. Right, Sienna? I She's love that. Crazy. I wish I'd had more of that. I feel like my entire childhood, it was either I was too skinny or I was too big and I had boobs when no one else did. And it was, I was so embarrassed of them. Like I always wanted my boobs to be smaller and like none of my friends got it. They were like, why would you want that? And I like, there were like points in my life where I was like, when I'm old enough, I'm just going to get them surgically like taken down. Like, I, I can't believe I just didn't love my body the way it was. It makes me so sad for my younger self. I know it is so sad. Well, there was, there's always the same thing is there's the decades of the cultures we hate, right? In the U S there's the decades of what is the new thing. So when I was growing up in the eighties, it was the skinny Barbie. So if Mm -hmm. you didn't have a skinny Barbie body, you were not beautiful. Which by the way, the skinny Barbie body is physically impossible to have. They did like statistics on it. If your waist was as small as Barbies were, your intestines would not fit. Like, (laughs) like proportionately, it's impossible to have. Right. And now we've swung the pendulum the other way to the Kim Kardashian booty was, it's just an unattainable booty too. Right. Unless you get it surgically added. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially for a Caucasian girl. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, right. You can't, everyone needs to just love what they have and embrace it. And 
I don't know how we can get everyone to teach this to their kids, but I'm starting with my little girl with celebrate your body because I wasn't taught to celebrate my body and celebrate your periods and your boobs, whether you have them or not. And what's, you know, whether you're skinny or not skinny, like it shouldn't matter. So that's a huge, yeah, that's definitely huge on my agenda. And I'm going to talk about some of these things in my books and sexism and body image, I think so important. And, you know, there's going to be some fun stories and of, you know, activities I get involved with. (laughs) (laughs) You might understand why I failed or didn't do well in my first MCATs after you read one of my stories. But yeah, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write this book and I'm going to be real and people are going to find out information about me and they can't fire me anymore because apparently we're allowed to have private lives now. And I think that was always my biggest concern was if I write that, I wanted to write this book 10 years ago. And I thought, if I write this book is my main job in the ER where I lived in Los Angeles going to fire me. I think I was truly thought that would happen, but now I realize there's just, that's not, that's just not a real thing I was imagining. So I'm not really nervous anymore about it. And I think there's so much, to be told in terms of a career of a physician and telling the whole career and just keeping that whole, the, basically the core, the core story is going to be a surf doctor. Um, you know, the trauma and the love that happens in a surf doctor's life over a span Mm -hmm. of 20 years. And, and hopefully people will learn things from my mistakes and learn things from my successes and, and just have a relatable story so that other people, other women can feel like, they can have their own story and be proud of it with its right. flaws and its, you know, possibilities. And they, they absolutely will love it. I'm so excited to read it. And I, I think it's important to not invalidate your thoughts. Cause I think a lot has changed over the past 10 years. And I'm sure you had so many experiences that added to that belief that something bad would happen if you were to voice your personal life. So I, I feel like the more that we normalize conversations like this and your book comes out and stories like that, are accepted, I think the more we can help change the narrative that led you to think that 10 years ago. Right. I absolutely think so. Yeah. And that maybe that, right. It just wasn't the time I didn't have all my thoughts in the right place and all the stories in the right place and the, the timing for the world to hear a story like mine too. It wouldn't, maybe it wouldn't have been an acceptable story at the time, but I feel like it's time now (laughs) I'm ready. Not so shy. And it's, and it's, and the other thing is you, you want to know that people want to hear this story too. I remember reading 50 shades of gray on vacation as a surf doctor somewhere and thinking, is this really what women want to read when they're on vacation? Is this really (laughs) like, can't, I can write a better surf doctor travel story than this and something a little bit more empowering and people can still have sex, but they don't have to be demoralized and entitled the whole time. I never read it for that reason. So I I can't totally relate to your sentiments to it, but I I absolutely agree. I think that's a really big place that people get success out of is when they identify something and they're like, well, it can be done better. And then they do it. So I I know the book is going to be an excellent hit. So one of my friends, she actually is doing um, an OB-GYN rotation in Hawaii. And she specifically, she was so excited when she heard I was going to have you on. And she had a lot of questions about how we can handle um, our personal lives and putting that first as, especially like when we're in the position of trainees, when it feels like everything has to be focused around medicine and studying and being there. Yeah, I think it's so important. What I didn't have early on in residency was I just studied and I 
or in medical school too, I studied and I went to school and I studied more and I went to school and residency too. And I sort of lost that fire and, and was really burnt out. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I found surfing, which became my passion, but for anyone, obviously it could be playing guitar or dancing or yoga or whatever it happens to be. I think you have to hold on to that one thing. So you don't lose yourself in medicine because you can so easily, there was often times when I just felt like a soldier in the army. I felt like I was taking orders from the attendings and carrying out tasks. And then the next day and it was grueling. It was over and over again. And I was really felt like I had left a military organization after residency and was free. And I, I can't stress enough how you have to really hold on to yourself during that and, and take that one thing you're passionate about and make sure you practice it on the daily, whatever it happens to be. Okay. Just like making time for it. Um, I also had a few questions about what your perspective is as a woman in medicine. And if you think you've had to change your behavior to fit in with male colleagues or how you really handled it. I guess the short answer would say to figure out who's on your side, especially with male colleagues, are they your allies or your enemies? And Mm -hmm. I don't want to mean this in like a hardcore feminist sense, although I would like us all to take back the word feminism, because it really Mm -hmm. just means you want equality between the sexes. It doesn't mean that you want to be better. And men can actually be feminists too. And those are a lot of the the men that I get along with really well, want to have women empowered and, and treat them as equals. And I think looking for those people around you, whether it's a medical school or residency or whatever field is so important. And if you come up against someone who's not, I think just really limiting your time with them and speaking, make sure you speak with them in groups and not alone. And mm-hmm. if they do start to demean you or say anything inappropriate, better to just you know switch the conversation, walk out of the room. And then for people you're forced to work with, there's some people I'm forced to work with here on a regular basis. And I, I find if you talk to them about their hobbies, sometimes it loosens them up and they, they don't take such a hard tone with you. And they're, mm-hmm. you really get them on something they enjoy. And then they'll just kind of lose track of the fact that they, are, are trying to belittle you. So that's a couple of my technique techniques that I've used, um, over my time to, um, deal with difficult people. Okay. Um, and not only with difficult people, how do you think you have handled sexism in the field with colleagues and with patients? Like, what do you, what do you do when you have a patient that thinks that you can't provide because you are not a man? So that used to happen very early in my career when I looked very young, they would say, Mm -hmm. how old are you? And is there another doctor here? And sometimes I'd explain to them that I was a young physician and that I had plenty of experience and I was, but then other times people are not willing to have you as a physician. You would go find someone that, that they see as a doctor, whether it be an older male with white hair or whatever they think that a doctor is. But I live in a small island now. So if I walk in a room and someone wants a male doctor, there might not be an, an option. I might be the only one working that day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you do come across that. It's not as, as common anymore. People are more accepting of female doctors. But one thing that happens quite frequently is I'll go into a room, talk to someone for 10 minutes after I introduce myself as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then they'll complain to the nurse that they've been waiting an hour to see the doctor. So after my, I had a recent boat accident and I was in a very grumpy mood when I went into work um, right before I had to have surgery. And I walked into this young man's room and I said, oh, I heard you said you hadn't seen the doctor yet. And I said, I was just in here for 20 minutes. My name's Dr. Myrie. And I said, is it 
possibly because I have a penis. They didn't realize that I was a physician. And I was biting my tongue immediately after that came out of my mouth. And I, I don't suggest doing things like that. I sort of took a chance because it was a very young guy and mm-hmm. I didn't suspect. You'd find it humorous. Funny. Yeah. And that he would take it a little bit as a joke. Um, so you have to pick your audience and pick your battles. It's so important. But 100%, I mean, starting in med school and some of the stories I'll tell in my book is as soon as you're in that position when you're like, oh my gosh, this person is completely being inappropriate with me and sexually harassing me, you have to report it, write it down, keep track of it, go to your dean of students, which I did. I actually had a volunteer elderly physician fired for harassing me. So there, it, you know, it does happen, but it becomes more difficult as you become a resident and you become an attending. The world is more complicated when money is involved and mm-hmm. people's tenure is involved. Um, but there are still avenues that you can take to make cases for terminating positions. It's not, it's not tolerated. Sexism is not tolerated very well anymore. But definitely you have to handle it the right way and document it and find allies. And there's definitely ways to go about that and getting someone involved early on who knows the legal ramifications of everything is so important. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and the last question we had for you was how have you balanced having a family life with the demanding hours of training and practicing medicine? It is very difficult to have it all. You know, when I was, had gone to medical school, I was 26. So I was, people were getting married at 26 and yeah, there was I'm 24 and people are getting married now. They were getting married left and right. So by the time I finished um, residency, I was 32. So, you know, I was getting teased by my father, who's a heart surgeon, that I was an old maid, which wasn't appropriate, dad. (laughs) Peace, not appropriate. But it was difficult. You know, I was doing match.com. I was doing eHarmony. I even hired a matchmaker. I mean, it was difficult being a young female physician in Los Angeles at 32 and trying to find someone that I wanted to spend my life with. It just was very hard process. I would have mm-hmm. to say, so I don't know that you can have it all. Honestly, I don't want to give false hope. I have many friends in emergency medicine who started training the same age as I did and they're single and some of them by choice, some of them not by choice. Um, a lot of people will have less children because they start later in life. So it's not, the most ideal way to start a family. In fact, I read this article recently about female surgeons and how they're even further delayed, obviously, because they have so many more years of training. Mm-hmm. And they talk about um, how the profession of surgery needs to figure out how to make it possible for women to have families and to have mm-hmm. children, because right now it's probably still impossible. But I think picking emergency medicine did help because it is shift work. But as we were talking about before, it is difficult to come home from a 12 hour night shift and then breastfeed your child and not fall asleep yourself. Um, so you do have to pick the right field for you and really examine what the hours are like to have a, to have a family if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to know whether you want a family or not when you go into medicine to, so you can plan fertility. A lot of my ER sisters froze eggs um, so they would be able to have kids Later, I did not do that, which was not something I would, thought I needed to. And I ended up having in vitro at 40 years old. And I have a daughter and two amazing extra kids from my husband's Aww. first marriage. So I was very fortunate in that way, but not everyone is. Some people are not able to have children at, you know, after 35. 
So I think, um, planning, family planning is important. Um, when you go into medicine to figure out okay. how you want to, you know, plan out your, your children, whether you want to do it in medical school residency afterwards, and then making sure that you have viable eggs or embryos to, to have determined exactly how many kids you want to have and not have your body make the choice for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think any, any woman going into a competitive career, this is good advice for them to hear. Right. Yeah. I, I really didn't think about family, family planning. And I, I do have to say the book that I did love that actually all the dating services in the world didn't help, but I read a book called the secret soulmate mm-hmm. and it basically makes you throw out all the mental trash of your past relationships feng shui your brain and was that did i say that right feng shui your brain feng shui i think so feng shui, yeah. feng shui your brain your room um and really make room in your life for someone and also the book basically prepares you to be the best version of yourself which is so important because you might not find a partner and so if you're the best ver- version of yourself you're gonna have an amazing life whether Regardless. you have a partner yeah how did you so end that- up finding your husband then if all the so- dating sites that's the crazy thing about the book. The book told me to write down a list of all the things I was looking for in a person. So I wrote down a very detailed list. I stuck it under rose quartz with salt and this, how they tell you to do it in the book. And I went mm-hmm. out surfing for about a month and a month into my doing, and then doing something you love. I surfed every day. And then one day I was surfing and I look over and I see this beautiful merman and his beautiful <laughs> blue eyes. And he literally looked exactly like I had described. I mean, I said like blonde, curly hair. I didn't, you know, I just everything, personality, everything. And it was just crazy. I mean, the universe basically handed him to me. But I think you're really, you know, I've dated so much. I date, I was 40. I dated for so many years. I knew exactly what I was looking for at that point. So, mm-hmm. of course, that helps you along the, the way. But it was kind of spiritually... I don't know. It was a spiritual. I believe in all of that stuff. Yeah. Right. I love that. To find a soulmate that way for me was not really what I thought would ever happen. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was one of these matchmaking sites, but to have the universe deliver someone to me while I'm surfing was, was exceptional. And there's so many things that we have in common. And literally we always laugh because we look at, I looked at the list not too long ago and everything's on there, everything except for money. <laughs> important to me it's not it's not that's not important to me the money can be made exactly yeah um so we that was pretty pretty funny because he he didn't have any money and uh we laugh about the car that he picked me up on the first date with um so most I think a lot of women might turn around and walk the other way (laughs) but like also like my mom says like we don't take anything when we leave yeah as long as no, the people we're with, we have a good time. That's what really I, matters. Right. I didn't care the car he was driving. I just cared about the person in that car and the heart behind the car. So yeah, behind the car. So that was, yeah. So I, I you know, there's definitely, it, it is a struggle for a, a professional woman, I think, to find an appropriate suitor. <laughs> These days, <laughs> it's not easy. Wasn't easy for me, but um yeah, I think knowing what you really want, putting yourself in situations to find the love of your life and, and doing an activity that you love, because really in your free time, w- what you want to do in your free time is your hobby. So mm-hmm. for you, it's yoga. So if someone doesn't like yoga and they think it's a waste of time, you're not going to have a very strong connection. So 
when Nick and I have days off, we want to go surfing together. And that's what we enjoy doing. So if he likes doing something else and I like doing something else, you're basically going to work and spend free time apart. And that's not going to make a strong relationship. So I think, you know, hobbies are so important, um, really in your life and your well-being, your mental health, all of that. I totally agree. And I, I appreciate that you highlighted the, the mindfulness aspect because I think that's something that's so overlooked and that's why we have such a big issue with mental health now. So um, I, I love bringing it up when I can on this podcast. In terms of like resources and things that you've learned from, what would you recommend to the audience? Like self-development or your favorite book or thing to learn from? I I absolutely love Untamed. That's one of my I do too. Favorite. Oh my gosh. Oh, Glennon Doyle has my whole heart. She does. She I mean, just started she, a podcast. I can't wait to start listening to it. Yeah, she does. I've 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 dabbled a little bit, but I I think it's so important to try to read a book of month if you can. So important. Stop the doom scrolling and just read a woman's story. I I love reading books about um, entrepreneurial women or just women's lives, like whether it's, uh, Michelle Obama's life or whether it's RBG or just, that's where my heart lies is reading about these women warriors before us and, and what they've done to make our lives better is an important, um, part of my life to really acknowledge them and learn about them. So I can hopefully become one of them as my goal. And then really just to make, myself available. I did start a site on Facebook called Med Bikini because I never felt like I had anyone to go to when I was experiencing sexism in in school, whether it was college or in more importantly, the site is for women in medicine because mm-hmm. there is so much sexism in medicine. So you can go there and other people who are part of the group can talk to you about options for you, depending on what type of sexism you're experiencing. I mean, there's just been over the year, I mean, there's just been so much, right? So many people have experienced sexism, whether it's um, just verbal or physical with all these cases that have come out over the last couple of years, whether it's in the entertainment business, the news business, you know, whatever it is. Um, It's just so important to have someone you can talk to about that. So that is a site on Facebook that I have running called Med Bikini. Um, So those are my, I guess those are my pieces of advice basically is really look for those authors that talk to you and speak to you and make you think better about yourself and, and think of your place having a bigger space in the world for yourself than you might otherwise feel. Okay. Um, and where can all of my listeners find you and follow you on your journey if they don't already? I'm at Dr. Candy survival surf Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dr. Candy and then surf and then Vival at Instagram. That's when, that's the main platform I usually spend most of my time on. A lot of my time has been spending, posting things about COVID, trying to get educate people as you are about immunology and the importance of vaccination mm-hmm. and really trying to take people off the misinformation highway and exit onto the science enlightenment, you know, path rather than the trip they're going on. So that's really where I focus a lot of my time now, but I I do try to answer DMS as much as I can. And I'm open to um, speaking, doing podcasts and medical school talks and really articles or anything that comes my way. That's positive for women in medicine. Excellent. Thank you so, so much. You are like the, the picture of like what I imagine, like everything I'm working towards to like getting to 
if that makes sense. So like a lot of what you share really inspires me. I love your page. I love the things you share in your story. This was such a wonderful conversation. I cannot thank you enough for your time. To keep up with Dr. Candy, you can find her on the Med Bikini Facebook group at Dr. Candy Survival on Instagram, Dr. Candice Myrie on Facebook, or you can check out her website, www.drcandysurfvival.com. Her book is projected to come out in 2022, and I will be first in line to order it when it's ready. If you enjoyed this episode or know someone that would, send it their way or tag us in your stories on Instagram. My Instagram is at Stephanie Arnuk, and again, Dr. Candy's is Dr. Candy Surf Vival. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, and feel free to follow All Things Con Amor on Instagram for updates on the next episode. We'll see you when we see you.